Welcome back to Stories at a Time and Space. This is our bonus episode. We've now finished season three and we're into our bonus episodes. But we're going to be giving you a bit of a gentle lead and we are going to be covering 12 Monkeys, uh, the Terry Gilliam film, and then we are going to be covering Doctor Who, all of the original classic Doctors, including a little soiree into the Hammer Horror uh, Doctor series. But before we do that, uh, we want to give you a lead in. And so what we're going to present of this time, this week and in the next episode, uh, we are going to be giving you uh, a flashback episode to when Julian and I first started discussing. So this episode and the next episode are two-part retrospective uh, in which Julian and I talk about Terry Gilliam uh, and his imagination or age trilogy. I won't go into too much because it's all in the intro. Uh, the only thing I'll say is that this was before Julian and I were officially set up as a podcast, so the audio is a little bit rinky-dink. Uh, but please bear with it, because there's a great discussion to go in it. Uh, this was originally episode 78 and 79 of 20th Century Geek. So, thank you for listening, and I shall uh, see you on the other side. In our part one retrospective review of Terry Gilliam's thematic Age and Imagination trilogy. Now, I don't know if this is as well known as some other thematic or even just standard trilogies, but it's a really important one in the career of Terry Gilliam. It's a trilogy that looks at the three ages of man. Childhood, middle age or adulthood and old age. And the films we are going to be covering in this retrospective are Time Bandits, Brazil and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So all three films released during the 80s, they are different interpretations on how imagination affects age. So sit back and enjoy our discussion as we start off talking about an overview of Terry Gilliam and we get straight into Time Bandits. I'll pass you over to me and Julian. Julian, welcome back on the show. It's my pleasure to be here, Scott. As always, uh, it's going to be a good conversation, I think, today. We were talking about uh, Terry Gilliam and his thematic uh, trilogy of films, which I think sort of heard referred to as his age trilogy or his imagination trilogy, uh, and that's uh, Time Bandits, Brazil, and uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um, so before we start, though, well, you know, what's uh, what was sort of your introduction to Terry Gilliam, and, and what's your thoughts on him as a director? Well, I, I like him. Uh, you know, I think that my introduction would have been seeing, uh, you know, exactly these films when I was relatively young. I mean, I think maybe, um, maybe I was, uh, you know, in high school or something like that. And, uh, you know, I think mu- 
much along the lines of, uh, you know, Tim Burton films mm. and David Lynch films. I really craved anything that was different. Mm. And so, you know, Gilliam was a, you know, wonderful director and one of my favorites because his films were different and they had that style, they had that look. Um, and I think at the time, um, you know, and I've talked about this before, that sort of, you know, I felt I was an outsider and I felt a lot of sort of social repression. I mean, the, the 80s and the early 90s were a, um, a, a very uh, repressed time over here. And I think that, um, you know, I identified with them for their whimsy and their zaniness. Mm. What about you? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's similar. I mean, in the 90s, um, I, I think as a, in the early 90s, I think my first introduction, unknowingly, actually was uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, um, was when someone identified him to me as a director. Um, and then later, I sort of came, it was sort of 12 Monkeys uh, in the mid-90s that sort of it struck home. I was like, oh yeah, I really like this guy. And I sought out some of his other stuff. And that's when I watched sort of um, Brazil and, and Time Bandits. And it was it was only then I realised that he was connected with um, Monty Python. Um, which really, when you watch the films, you should really make that connection. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it sort of it dawned on me after I watched a couple of the films. I was like, oh, my God, you know, there is that. And then I learned the connection with the Monty Python. And having watched Monty Python on TV and stuff, it was... Uh, um, it seemed more. It seemed more cool. I was like, "Oh god, this guy! You know, he's, there's this British comedy, and it's gone to it's gone to this, and granted, he's American, but it was it was out of that, and it had that sort of humour and that that sort of um, n- nonsense, you know, sort of styling that I really enjoyed. Um, that I felt I was I was sort of enjoying something that other people didn't quite get. Yeah, I think it was similar for me. Uh, although for me, I did not really watch all of Python until later mm. because Python just was never played and was never available in the States. Um, and back then, you know, we didn't have streaming or, or anything like that. Um, so Python was sort of elusive. I mean, Python was this kind of thing that as an American, you saw clips of your whole life, mm. but you never saw a full episode of. Um, and that really built Python up as, you know, this amazing offbeat thing that when I finally saw it and, and sort of forced myself to watch all the way through it, I I was rather let down. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I knew, you know, wasn't Gilliam the, the, the only, uh, Python, uh, member who was not, uh, born in Britain? Yes. Yes. Yeah, all the others are uh, sort of British. Sort of came up, came up through the comedy ranks, and sort of, you know, he, yeah, he's the lone uh, American in the crew. Yeah, and and I remember Twelve Monkeys was another sort of. Uh, um, I mean, I love Twelve Monkeys. Uh, I I love the the French original, and I think that was another kind of like watershed, uh, um, where instead of being sort of like the zany director who had made these these oddball movies that I like, um, he was you know, sort of, uh, you know, had made a movie that everyone had to have seen in the year it came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like, 12 Monkeys is like his, it's, it's like his mainstream um, breakthrough, isn't it, really? So I think it's the one film 
if you were to sort of mention Terry Gilliam, I think the majority of people would would know Twelve Monkeys over probably well the rest of his sort of uh, filmography, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true. Although, although I think that if there's a second one, it's Fear and Loathing, um, mm. which you know sort of more people know about than have seen. Um, but uh, at least at least over here, I mean, everybody is you know. Nobody really knows who directed it, but everybody knows that film. Yeah. Um, at least in, in film circles or interesting people circles. That's that's another interesting one. I I remember I you know I have seen, I've watched that film and, it, and I went and read the book, um, and I think it's one of those that I I, I watched it. I can't remember what year the film came out. I mean that sort of that late nineties, early two thousands. Um, yeah. I think uh, late 90s. Yeah, because no, I remember being at uni- I was at university when I read the book, so it looked between two thousand two thousand three, and I remember thinking then that, like it's cool and I, I liked it and it's a it's it's interesting, but there's a definite, um, it's it's an insight into Americana that I didn't quite have, so I think sometimes you you know I felt slightly detached from the book because I couldn't, there were certain elements I didn't get. Um, but I think maybe we should, I should revisit that. But the film itself is fantastic. It's again, it's that thing of almost unfilmable, but he finds a way to do it of uh, with his you know, the absurdness of it all. Oh yeah, quite. Yeah, and I th- and I think that sort of stood the test of time. Um, mm. And it, it obviously lends itself to you know Gilliam into imaginary sequences and all of this. Um, as does Twelve Monkeys, uh, although Twelve Monkeys is more. You know, obviously it's not a linear narrative, but there's less doubt what's real and what isn't mm. um, than most of his films. Uh, and I and I think that you know, I don't know. I mean, do you find do you find that you like Gilliam reined in, or do you want Gilliam to be Gilliam? Uh, I think I prefer having watched these and some of the others I think I, I, think I actually it, it depends because um, it's the same with most directors I think when when Gilliam's being Gilliam you get something which is you can get gold you know it, it can be great but then it, it's still sort of like you know it can be overly long or it can be a little bit uh, there's elements that are frustrating and sometimes I think you need an honest filter to some of these mm-hmm. creative types that sort of says, I really see what your vision is. However, you can tighten it up by doing this, this and this, or not doing this for that matter. Um, right. And I sometimes, I sometimes think seeing them reined in, you get a much tighter story. Um, and I think 12 monkeys is a, is a good example of that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, and, and I do, uh, I do sort of adore that film and I, I find it holds up. Um, I I watched for the first time in preparation for this podcast The Man Who Killed Don Quixote um, and I was quite taken with it and Is that his latest I, one? Uh, yeah, it's uh, from just last year from 2018 Yeah, we, I, I can't get it over here Oh, well, you know I, uh, I, I was quite taken with it mm. and um, you know, and I thought uh, it, it may well be one of his better films I, 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 I also... I, I sort of didn't think all that much of the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. But what I thought was interesting about Quixote was that he had taken so, like a, an earlier version of it 
you know, the one that was aborted mm. was going to involve time travel and and all of this stuff. And the final product does not have those elements. Um, it, it's been reconfigured, and, and so much of what I love about it is the ways in which it's been reconfigured and the ways in which it still had its fantastic sequences uh, and sort of fantasy sequences and sequences where people are in costume and big crowds for reasons in plot mm. that uh, you go with or you don't. And, you know, it, it has a little bit of, you know, I, I keep thinking of Fellini uh, every time I, I watch Gilliam. But, um, you know, it has those elements, but it has a much more controlled plot. And I think it's interesting that when he had the opportunity to sort of revise something for, you know, 20 years, it wound up having a more tightly controlled plot than the stuff then it has fewer of those things that irritate me mm. where, you know, I think mm, that, you know, I know it's a fantasy film, but you know, this doesn't quite make sense uh, or resonance. Yeah. I get a feeling with, with some of the, um, with Gilliam as well, there's a, he, he has a clear vision and he runs at it and he's obviously going to create that vision. And I think he has a level of stubbornness, but he also from, what I've you know in some of the research I've done, and also so when you watch things, it's clear that on set he may have an idea and then go, I'm going to film all this as well. You know, we've got the set up and I've got the people right. I've just had this idea and we're going to do this, and you know that you can see that sort of um, a disjointed nature to things at times where they've tried to either shoehorn an idea in or things go off on a tangent. Um, that I think. You know, harkens back to that sort of being a part of the Monty Python writing crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I know that the only reference I could find to uh, Fellini was that uh, a, a version of uh, Brazil was going to be named 1984 and a half <laughs> in reference to eight and a half. Mm. Um, but you know, uh, that's sort of my my take on Fellini is that, you know, almost every scene is amazing. Mm. Uh, memorable, stunning, uh, brilliant, but in most of his films, not all, but in most of them, uh, none of those scenes really have anything to do with one another. Yes. Yeah. Um, maybe a, char- a character wanders from one scene into the next, and that's about it. Um, and each one of them is crazy and amazing, but... Uh, and, and I think that there's something about that that's in Gilliam, too. Uh, you know, that you're, you're probably right. I mean, traces back to the Python and, and the sort of, like, you know, uh, whimsical uh, comedy and absurdist comedy that was that Python really pioneered. Mm. Well, I think he gets better. And I think, like you say, he gets tighter as he's got on. And there are films um, of Gilliam's that I like. And I can watch again and again and again. I can watch, you know, and you can take more from them and they can be read in different ways depending on what mood you're in or what age you are and all those kinds of things. And then I think there are ones, um, I think, is it called Tideland? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I watched once and I don't think I ever, I don't know, it left me in a way that I was like, I don't ever want to revisit that. Yeah, I felt the same way about that. Um, um. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So I think you know he, he has these flights of fancy and he has these things, where, and then he'll do something a little bit out of left field, where like you say, it's not quite what you'd expect from him. 
but he, he has got better and better over the years. Um, and I have to respect that he's kept maintained a vision. Like he's never, um, you know, there's always rumours he's going to be the person to do this film or that film or whatever. But he's never, I don't want to say sold out because that's the wrong term. But he's never gone completely mainstream. Do you know what I mean? He's never gone fully commercial to make a. It's always on his terms, for better or worse. Right, and he does have these, you know, sort of infamous fights with the studios over the cuts of the film. Mm. Um, and it, in fact, apparently, the uh, documentary that was made about the aborted attempt uh, with the Johnny Depp version of Don Quixote, um, what the only reason why he had a documentary crew there is that he routinely has documentarians on set in order to document what he was doing for when he runs into problems with the studio or, you know, in order to show, like, that was not my vision, they changed this. Yeah. It's uh, it's so clear that he's come across that so often. Um, that, like you say, it's clearly, it's, clear, it's clearly a snag for him, you know, a bugbear for him. I mean, it was, for example, um, I was, when I was, the version of, of um, the version of Brazil that I watched is like 136 minutes long. But there's a, there's a theatrical cut. It's like a, it's one hour 40. That was studio really? mandated. I've, I've never seen, you've never seen that. Yeah. Well, it didn't do well, because I'm pretty sure it probably didn't make any sense. <laughs> right. Well, you know, that, I mean, you know, are, there are some people who think the, the finished movie doesn't make any sense. But I can only imagine, uh, you know, I mean, it's like cutting, cutting David Lynch's Dune down to two hours or something. Mm. Um, you know, it cannot, uh, cannot make sense. No, and that's why I think sometimes you've got to see, you know, um, the whole vision to, to sort of fully understand where he's trying to get to. Um, and I, I, I really would like to see his Don Quixote film, um, you know, and it kept getting cancelled and pushed back and because of issues he had at Cannes, it hasn't got a European release and all this other stuff. So I, I really do want to track it down at some point. Um, yeah, I was I was surprisingly pleased with it. But I, I agree with you that he sort of uh, aged well. Mm. You know, I mean, he is he seems to be very curmudgeon and, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, I mean, he's been, um, you know, talking about how sort of every movie could be his last movie for a decade now. Um, and I know that was part of, um, you know, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, mm. uh, in which, you know, Heath Ledger died. And, and he was sort of thinking about his own mortality, and then his, one of his lead actors died. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I don't know, you know, so... He... And that's the thing. I think you can. It's one of those. It's one of those directors again. That I think, like you say, you can track real life events in parallel with the productions of his films, can't you? You can sort of see how those things impact. Because, like you say, with the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, for many others, that would have been it. Okay, you know, Heath Ledger has passed, so that's going to close down that film, or they'll completely reboot it, or do whatever they're going to do with it. But no, I'm going to push on and I'm going to do this and this and I'm going to change direction and do these things and I, I'm always impressed that you know he he, he has the imagination and, and the, the verve to keep pushing on these things yeah indeed and I mean the fact that he kept coming back to Quixote is sort of yeah. amazing um, 
And, you know, he's sort of persevered as a director despite that and, you know, Heath Ledger dying and, and other things that have happened to him, including financing problems on movie after movie. Um, you know, the other thing that's worth noting, um, you know, as we, you know, still kind of wrap up the general impressions mm. is he seems like a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't expect that of, a, of an artist. I don't need my writers and artists to be nice guys, but he seems like he seems like the kind of person who will stubbornly stick to his vision, but that he legitimately likes his actors, legitimately loves stories and and loves film and donates to charity and, and cares about uh, politics and, and and certainly struggles in you know a sort of corporate filmmaking environment in which you need to raise, you know, uh, $40 million to, to make one of these movies. Mm. But, um, but he does seem like a legitimately nice guy. Uh, maybe difficult to deal with if I were in charge of financing <laughs> yeah. or something. But, uh, but other than that, I mean, and, it, and it's refreshing to see. Uh, I mean, that does strike me as sort of um, uh, very British. Uh, you know, our... Yeah, the the way in which he's nice, the way in which he seems to actually care about people and, and politics, um, it does strike me as, as, as sort of in line with some other British uh, creators and, and creative types who I've seen. Yeah, no, I agree. Actually, I think I think whenever I've seen him in interviews, and like I said, the, the 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 grumpy sort of granddad sort of comes across, but it's with a it's a, with a level of integrity and. Um, honesty that I really respect like you know he he does have opinions on things um both artistic uh culturally and and, and politically and he, you know he's willing to voice those but it's never sort of um in an aggressive way or a sort of a, a derogatory way um and you know like I say I respect that he keeps to his visions I think that's always been he's a bit to, to me he's almost like a more authentic version of a director than like than Tarantino you know, you you know it does Tarantino film, and he does his he does his thing, and he'll you know he'll fit into the pop culture mold more. Um, and Gilliam's that same thing to me that you know it's you know a Gilliam film. Um, oh yeah. And uh, well, and he he'll do well, those films, but he he doesn't want to disrespect other people's films. It's it's never done to make anyone else look bad or to question that. But he's just doing his thing. If you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think both Tarantino and uh, and Gilliam are people who you can probably identify the director based on you know a, a three minute clip, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, just the the way it's shot, you you know that that's a Gilliam film. Um, but but with Tarantino, there's no illusion that like I mean Tarantino would be a fun guy to hang out with, mm. but there's no illusion that he's a nice guy in the way that Gilliam is, you know. No, true. So let's so let's move on to the actual the the three films. So this is uh, I, I I couldn't find anyone that it was ever acknowledged that this was an intended trilogy. Um, I think it's more happenstance and uh, lucky coincidence. Um, but this is sort of the age and uh, imagination thematic trilogy. So the idea being that each film represents one of the stages of man and the in their views on imagination or their sort of um the imagination of that stage so we have time bandits um 
taken from the child's perspective. Uh, Brazil, um, focusing on that sort of the the corporate um, middle-aged um, perspective, and then the the adventures of Baron Munchausen, looking at that sort of the the sort of final stages of uh, of life and looking back um, on on what you have achieved, whether it's true or not, uh, in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so the three films we're going to talk about. So um, I suppose we'll, we'll let's start with the, let's start with the kids and we'll work the way through. So uh, so Time Bandits re- is from uh, nineteen eighty one, uh, written by Terry Gilliam and with Michael Palin um, in in tow. <clears throat> so what are your first thoughts on sort of uh, on Time Bandits? Well, uh, I, I watched these three films with uh, a friend of mine. Uh, who's sort of of my generation, and sort of both of us thought, especially with Time Bandits, that these were all films that we sort of had grown up liking, and, and for much of the reason that uh, I described, and especially with Time Bandits, uh, I think both of us had the impression, why did I like this? <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I thought... Brazil aged a lot better. I, I thought Time Bandit it came off. Um, a, a lot of what it was trying to do seemed like its whimsy and charm seemed to me like a, uh, um, you know, uh, what I, I think what I liked as a kid was sort of what I liked uh, about Goonies. Um, mm. You know, this kid kind of thrust into this adventure, you know. Um, and, and I think that you know, some sequences are just simply awful. I mean, the Robin Hood sequence is terrible, right? Yeah. I think John Cleese plays plays Robin Hood. Uh, and I thought, you know, this has nothing to say about Robin Hood. This is not funny. Um, and and I think that the Satan stuff, you know, like, why are there angels who are midgets who, I know it's imagination and do whatever you want. I like the math, right? Mm. I mean, there's stuff that I like. Um Certainly, like, the, the, the sets are wonderful, um, and it certainly has a sense of whimsy. But I, I don't understand why these angels have, uh, you know, are, they're just like, well, we're sick working in this department we've been demoted to, so let's start robbing people uh, of their yeah. material possessions. I don't know why that's happening. I don't know why this whole, like, Satan plot stuff is going on, or, or why God can't just make another map. I... I I don't, I, I don't understand that stuff. Uh, what were your impressions, uh, if I haven't been too strong? No, no, it's true. I think it's one of those films... Again, okay, watching this time, uh, with, I say, with a more of a critical eye to, to look into, to discuss it, you, you do notice flaws um, you know, when you look at it in that way. And I think this was the first time I did. I sort of thought, this feels like a sketch show with a loose connection for each bit. So it's like okay, they've given, they've come up with an excuse for them to travel through time, and then each time's going to be a sketch, and then then they're going to do this, and then they're going to do that, um, and it felt it does it feels incredibly sort of bitty, um, but the thing that sort of struck me more than anything this time is the shifts in tone. That mm-hmm. I found really sort of like you say I, I I'm always been, I'm quite forgiving of like I say the idea of having the little people as sort of. Um, workers in heaven um i was quite i was quite i was like yeah okay i can i can go with that they're creating this sort of mythology of um 
clearly something that, that Terry Gilliam has got an issue with is the corporate world. Yeah. Um, you know, so heaven, uh, you know, creation is, is basically a corporate entity that you've got tiers and departments and people have got, you know, people working shrubbery. Um, and that thing obviously comes up again and again and again, the idea of, of, of the corporate world or their corporate stooge. Um, so I, I was quite fine with that. I thought, okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm gonna, but it's the fact that you say they go to revolutionary France, um, you know, you get Napoleon Bonaparte and the tone is, you know, comedic, you know, but you've got that sort of, a, not, not a darker edge, but you've got, okay, you've got a realistic element in that, okay, it's a destroyed castle, but you've got Ian Holm playing Napoleon uh, as a sort of a, a slightly daft version, obsessed with his height. You know, he starts reeling off other people that are shorter than him. Yeah. And, and then, you know, who likes, he likes to watch comedy on stage, and you think, okay, I'm fine with that. And then they shift to another thing, and then like I say, they have the loon, the the, the the almost Prince Charles impression that G- John Cleese gives of Robin Hood. And then they, you go to ancient Greece with Sean Connery's Agamemnon, and it's 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 a completely different film. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's a shift in tone. I I uh, I also I, I I like the sort of bureaucratic heaven stuff. Mm. Um, I don't I don't mind that. Um, I, I'm like, I'm more bothered by like why is Satan obsessed with technology? Um, you know, it, it, this seems very strange. Mm. Uh, and of course, this hasn't dated well because of course we all have um, you know computers in our pockets, the, the mm. likes of which uh, were never imagined uh, uh, at the time the film was made. Um, I I did take some umbrage at the Napoleon sequence mm. um, where, I, you know, I thought, um, you know, certainly, you know, uh, uh, there can be a million criticisms of Napoleon, but Napoleon was part of, uh, you know, like Cromwell, uh, part of, you know, the rise of a sort of middle-class meritocracy where somebody could actually be a good general because they were a good general and not because you know, they had been appointed because they were somebody's son. Um, and the idea that Napoleon, of all people, would be incompetent and, and, and utterly daft. I mean, he's interested in the stage show, but, I mean, he, he seems so bourgeois in his, his values. You know, yeah. he, just, he likes a silly puppet show and likes when they hit each other. Uh, and it just, you know, it, it didn't strike me as having anything to say. Um, you know, I, I, I think you're right about those shifts in tone. That you know, the Agamemnon sequence is like this can't be from the same film. Um, I, I did like that sequence more, although you know, I found myself thinking like, yeah, I don't think Agamemnon fought a Minotaur. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know why you decided to put that in. Well, uh, again, this and this is one of the things that sort of again runs through. There are sort of th- again themes that I sort of find running through this is. Um, the you know with these characters um that i think that's that it, it doesn't have anything to say like you say as as a satire on anything that's happening at the time or anything else but i honestly think that terry gilliam has got uh, an issue with any m- figure of authority that tries to implement a, a, a um, an element of i think like organization and control yeah 
Um, so you see it with um, with Napoleon. You know, he he takes the Mickey out of Napoleon as being like say almost incompetent, which is incredibly odd, as you say, because he he led this army and conquered most of Europe. Um, However, then he shows Agamemnon as a warrior that actually wants to sort of, yeah, we're going to have a celebration about art and craft as, as a serious leader. Um, and so I, I, and I always took it as, like I say, that any person in this that's going to show, um, like I say, the, that, that desire to implement a, a, a regime of control, he's going to poke fun at them um, for no other reason that he doesn't like it. And I think that that sort of that's always been that in my reading of that, um, uh, it, it sort of comes to thing about Satan as well. So the the, the evil, uh, the evil one, as they refer to him, is he has this obsession with technology. And again, it's that thing of it almost feels easy. Um, you know, this thing coming from the sort of seventies and the eighties of the sort of the evil technology, or it's going to turn on us, or it's going to be consumerism. Um, so you know the, the film starts with the the mum and dad watching a game show and they can win a with like a slow cooker or a toaster or something, and then you know the, the, there's this constant thing then about technology or about sort of like you know uh, it's, it's not, not even good to, it's consumer t- technology white goods, and it seems to poke fun at that, but it doesn't seem to be a satire in any way of saying it's bad, it's making us lazy, it's making us bad parents because it it they never get to that. <laughs> No, I think that's I, I think that's very aptly said. I mean, I, I think the beginnings of sort of like you bet your life game show, mm. um, I, I quite like. Um, you know, and it reminds me of sort of you know RoboCop mm. or something. Um, you know, and then you know the sort of uh, having the uh, the household goods. You know, I mean, even when there's the fire at the end, right? You know, she's worried about her household products. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean. Does strike me, you know, there's a sort of like Tim Burton sort of uh, satire of the '50s, uh, although obviously this is later, you know. But but that same sort of like idea that these are somehow going to improve our life to the point where we're more interested in our dishwasher than our kids. But as you say, it doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, and 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 to the same extent, I mean, I found myself thinking like, like I don't understand anyone's motivation in this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the evil one's motivation. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand God. Uh, I don't understand the angels who, you know, are just like, ah, you know, screw this, let's rob people. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't understand the kid. Like, he wants to stay with Agamemnon. He's like, I, I, I'm, I've been appointed your heir. Uh, you know, so he never misses his dad. There's no single scene in which he misses his dad. Um, you know, at the beginning, he seems as if he thinks he's going to go home eventually. And then once he's with Agamemnon, he's like, yeah, uh, I'm quite happy here. Don't rescue me. Which, you know, I think that's one of the more successful sequences. But um, and, and there are certainly things that I like. I mean, I like the magic show with, you know, the sort of teleportation board disappearing. But... Um, I, I don't really understand the, the kid's motivation or, or any of these characters. Well, I think it's one of those films that if you read it in... The, the other way that I tried to read this film was... Um, did did this... Because ha- you, you, you can read this as like, none of this happened. 
you know, so if you read it so through in that first section of the film, you, obviously you, you got the you, know, you bet your life game show, and the parents are fixed to the TV. They're eating like a microwave meal, and he's sat at the back reading a book, and he's actually reading about ancient Greece um, in the book. And you also see that in his room, he's got uh, another book about Robin Hood. So he's you know the kids they're trying to lay those hints that that you know all these ideas are there. Um, and to me, I think there's this sort of... It, it's never set up. Nothing, that, that's the problem with this that I found again, was nothing is set up very well. So you're just supposed to assume from this one small section that he has a poor relationship with his parents. But again, it's sort of like you only see them over dinner twice. And in, the, in that, it's sort of like, oh, I don't want to eat this. And they're like, All right, well, don't. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's not, not. They don't seem like terrible parents. They're not abusing him. They don't seem to be ignoring him. They're trying to engage with him at a few points, and then, so. But then you, it never express, expressly says like there's no Chekhov's gun sort of situation for Agamemnon or anything like that. Where he's like, you know, he he does mention something out of the book, um, but there's nothing explicitly where he says like I wish I never lived here, you know, sort of thing. And I know. I don't want it that. Uh-huh. I don't want it, it, it to be that um, explicit, but it's not even really hinted at. To be perfectly honest, um, so I find that if you take it all as a dream, there's elements of hero worship. Like he is look, he's supposed to be looking for that perfect father figure that he finds in Agamemnon, and that sort of like you know that that simple life. Um, I don't think that explains the Robin Hood scenario. That that seems to me like a leftover Monty Python sketch, um, but it, it it maybe feeds into that dream logic of the whole situation where things are just sort of like you know are conflicting and contradictory in their own sort of environments. Well, I, I think I agree with all of this. I mean, I I, I think that uh, your point is well made about um, you know sort of how this can all be a dream, and I, and I kept find myself kept thinking of. Um, uh, of Wizard of Oz, mm. uh, and I think that there's a there's a level at which this movie wants to be a sort of madcap, uh, um, you know, '80s version of Wizard of Oz. Mm. Um, but in Wizard of Oz, everything feels, uh, you know, as as silly and madcap as, as that movie can be. Everything feels as if it is psychologically resonant, mm. as you say, right? Like you know, oh, these are other father figures, or, you know, this is, is, you know, escapism is positioned as wanting to escape this this boring uh, life and, you know, your family and all of this. Um, And the point is there's no place like home. None of that, those layers really are there in this version. Um, and, and And I think, also, you make a good point about like feeling as if those elements are sort of there and like a Monty Python sketch. And I, and I find myself thinking, uh, this is a very good. If you think of the movie as like a um, blueprint for a bigger version of it, mm. right? Um, I, I don't know. I rarely watch movies and think that they should be remade. Uh, I certainly felt that about this. I thought, like, there are great ideas here. This would be fantastic uh, if you tightened these things up and, you know, maybe made a few changes. But the kernel of the story here is great, right? I mean, the idea of these episodic 
adventures through time that are just sort of, you know, madcap and silly, uh, you know, with this kid character, with these Wizard of Oz elements in the framing sequence. I, I, I think it's great. I think that's a, that's a fantastic idea. And they talked about, like, you know, rebooting it as a series or mm. something. I don't know if that's serious. But, but I do feel as if there's enough good there that I want those elements to be stronger and the weaving between those, those episodes uh, or these, these aspects of the uh, movie to be stronger. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, there is, there's, there's enough there to go at. And like I say, it, it's one of those things, again, that if it, went through a, if it went through a stronger filter and it had been given a bit more time to gestate, a bit like we said with, say, Don Quixote, then I think it would be stronger. Um, you know, again, if you take this as dream logic, then you can probably forgive more. But there are still elements that that, that bothers me. You know, there's um, mm-hmm. like you say that. So the whole sort of the Robin Hood thing aside, which I think, like I say, wouldn't have felt out of place in Monty Python. You know, a sort of a, a Robin Hood playing as a royal, sort of doing a royal dignitary kind of thing. Um, and his, his merry men being a bunch of like real bandits. It, it, it's if you take that as a sketch, it's absurd enough that it makes me. I find it funny, but it feels so out of place in the film. But it, the other thing I find bizarre is they then go through history, and history seems to have these fantasy elements keep popping up. Like you say, he, he fights a minotaur, which is is it a bloke in a with a with a bull's head on? I don't know. And then they go to the Titanic, and they all. All, all the sort of the little people then have, uh, have have tuxedos and no one questions it and I'm a bit like oh, I know it's supposed to be a comedy and that's sort of, okay I'm going to let it slide um, but then and then they go yeah. to the, the land of legend and it's like there's, it's just sort of you get the ogre and it sort of it flips into a different film again and I'm just like oh, okay now I've got to keep up with this again yeah no that's quite true especially the sort of like land of legend I mean you know some of the deserts photography is, is, is makes a big impression on me and I, I really enjoy but the land of legend is like wait a minute I, I, I thought we were traveling through time you mm. know where is where is this place and and what is the land of legend um, you know I mean I get that the evil one has to live somewhere but you know where exactly is this I mean I guess they have this map of the universe you know and as you say it's like well is this a universe in which there is the Minotaur, um, but but you know one of one of my problems with the with the dream uh, logic aspect of it is that I don't know, and and this is true of one of the things that irritates me about about Gilliam's film is that uh, I sometimes I'm not sure that that element works within mm. the sort of like framing sequence that's supposed to be reality, so. So at the end, you know, he, the boy is back in his room and there's a fire and a fireman kind of wakes him up. Um, and, you know, it's sort of linked thematically by smoke and the fireman pulls him out of the house. Uh, and so you think, oh, maybe this is all in a dream. But then the, the fireman winks at him as he drives away. Well, um, well, worse than that, the fireman winks at him after his parents have just been blown up in reality by a, by, uh, a ch- by a chunk of pure evil. Yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, you, and, and you're just supposed to... 
like, what what am I left with at the end of this movie? I kept, I think I said to the person I was watching it with, like, uh, his parents are dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what is the next scene of this movie? Yeah. Like, you know, this, like, you know, uh, uh, Oliver Twist, uh, you know, yeah. meet the time bandits or something? Well, what have you done? And I think, you know, there are things you can take from it that, you know... Um... You know, God is an uncaring bureaucrat who doesn't really care about people. He's, you know, he's, he's the whole point of the film is he was testing out pure evil um, as a concept, and, and you sort of, again you sort of think, okay, that makes sense. So you know, he, and he, when when it all happens, he just wanders off and he returns the kid to his home, um, and it just happens to have been a chunk that they've missed. But like I said, there's no follow up to that. There's no there's no resolution. Um, and you know, I read in 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 looking into these films and that there was people that do say, oh, well, I know it's supposed to be, it's an open ending, and it's sort of, you know, you're supposed to read into it what you will and all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you're not really given, even for you know, even in, there are times when you can go, well, that's what the director intended, and this is how I read it. I don't know what. I don't know what I'm supposed to take from that ending. <laughs> and that's well, the, that's the have- problem. I think Scott, you've helped me to understand this movie better. Uh, I, I think that the the killing of the parents is is just a kind of uh, Python sketch bit, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, and it is set up. I mean, you you see very obviously that they've missed this chunk of uh, of evil. Um, you know, the idea that I, I'm not really sure how that gets into the quote unquote real world or, you know, it's transported back home, you know, um, but it's, you know, in the uh, sort of microwave or oven or, or whatever uh, that device is. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, uh, well, wouldn't it be funny if the, the parents touched it and blew up at the end? Uh, and there seems to be no concern for that might be completely traumatizing. And what is this kid going to do next? Yeah. That's the thing. I think, you know, when you when you watch a sketch show, uh, like an episode of Monty Python, you know, you there are sketches that do that, that they, that they just abruptly end or they have that absurdist finish punchline and you just sort of, you, you roll with it and you either find it funny or you don't. But it's fine in a sketch show because it's, they they are literally of no consequence. You roll on to the next the next one, and, and it's sort of you know you might find the next one funny. the The idea for for a film is supposed to be at least for the most part a closed narrative. Um, that you know you get to the end, and you can be left with a hook. You can be left with something, but this is just blown open. It's just sort of there's just there's just yeah it um. Well, I was thinking, like, you know, of, uh, you know, imagine a, uh, a a sort of much more Munchausen sequel in which, uh, you know, he uh, has grown up, um, mm. you know, in an orphanage uh, and has, you know, sort of had this horrible life, but he remembers these these adventures from childhood that everyone thinks he's made up. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I find the, the wink at the end alarming instead of, of clever uh you know i i mean i get that maybe that's that's god in disguise uh but you know if you carry enough to wink at the kid you know to sort of tell him like oh this is all part of a plan uh it's all going to be all right 
it's not going to be all right. Mm. Why wouldn't you care enough to prevent his parents from being blown up? Mm. Um, I, do, I don't know. But, uh, I, I mean, I guess it makes sense as, you know, a sort of almost as a uh, more of a Python movie. And, and, you know, it was made between, I guess, Life of Brian and uh, what, what is the last one? Holy Grail. Oh, um, yeah, you got Holy Grail, uh, Life of Brian, and then uh, now for something completely different. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, they're, they're still making Python movies Yeah. At, at the time. So, I mean, I guess I can understand it almost as, like, you know, there was that kind of, like, split off from Python, that, that Gilliam used, you know, a lot of fellow Python actors mm. and, and writers. Um, and that kind of dissipated and then, then stopped. Um, or, you know, they'd come back in, but clearly at that point he was his own director. And at this point, clearly he's not yet, and he's kind of doing his own thing, but it's still kind of half a Python movie. Yeah, and I think that's the way to see it, isn't it? This is very much, this is, this is a, this has got to be seen through a, a, a you know, a Python uh, filter. Um, and you could probably put this next to um, uh, Search for the Holy Grail. Right. In that sense of the absurdness of it and the ending, you know. And that, that film is is supposed to be a, a medieval, um, you know, epic comedy, absurdist comedy. But it ends with them being arrested by the police. Um, mm-hmm. As sort of, almost as cosplayers, kind of historical reenactors. Um, and it feels very similar in that tone of like you know, and there's going to be a shift left, and then we're going to do another shift, and then we're going to do another shift, and you sort of, it's a little bit breakneck, um, and you've you've sort of got to keep up with it really to try and, um, you know, if 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 you're going to appreciate it, and I, I see what I understand why people do like this film. But again, I think you know you you can say, oh, it's just childish imagination, and that's what it's supposed to be. That there's that dream logic. However, as you say, I think it's that's almost now trying to be used to sort of paper over um, obvious flaws in it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair, and I, and I do think that, like, I mean, this gets into the wider question of sort of imagination and. Mm. You know, which is obviously very important to Gilliam, and you know, and I respect that. But I think that, um, you know, when I was a child or an adolescent, this meant something very different than it does to me now. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, like even the phrase "dream logic" implies that there is a logic here. Yeah. It might not be. You know, it's a, it, it might be sideways to, to our, you know, rational logic, and I'm fine with that. Um, you know, but you have these discussions, especially about movies or comics or art, where, you know, um, especially since Time Bandit, where you say, like, well, you know, um, you know why, does, uh, why does Superman do this? Mm. And somebody says, what are you talking about? It's a it's a comic or a movie about a guy who flies yeah. from an alien planet. You know, what about the that this is a fantasy? Do you not get? And of course, 
that's a very unsatisfactory and unfair uh, thing to say because there are rules. I mean, you think of uh, magic, right? I mean, it's very important if you're doing magic, which is, you know, uh, sort of clearly fantasy, that there are rules, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, if, if, if Harry Potter can, can travel in time, why doesn't he in the other books or movies, yes. right? Um, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to say. And if you, as a member of the audience, think, you know, I can go with the magic bit. I can go with, you know, Quidditch and flying around on a broom. And, you know, I understand that's baked into how this universe works. But I don't understand within the internal laws of this universe why, you know, somebody isn't doing X, Y, or Z. Mm. Um, and, and that becomes a problem. So, so I think one about how maybe when I was younger, I didn't have that same sense, and I was just charmed by the whimsy and the imagination of it in a way that now, as an older man, I, I want the, the logic part of the dream to, to be there. Um, and then I think about, uh, you know, about the time in which we're in, in which science is questioned, experts are questioned, logic is questioned, and I certainly, obviously, Gilliam is on the left, and, and he's not, uh, you know, I mean, you know, he's made anti-fascist movies. Mm. What you pointed out about Napoleon is, if anything, he's knee-jerk anti-authoritarian. But, uh, but this same sort of, like, uh, doubting of what is reality, uh, you know, unbridled imagination strikes me as something that when there isn't a logic to it can be dangerous. Mm. No, I, I agree. I, yeah, I agree that, like you say, the internal, the internal logic or the internal rules um, have to be consistent. You know, like you say, you, you, I'm, I'm willing to give a MacGuffin, I'm willing to give that sort of one or two things and you can go, okay, I'm going to accept that in this universe this happens. I'm going to accept in this universe that happens. But you've still got to follow a certain rules of physics, or you've got to follow certain rules of logic in order for these things to work. Otherwise, like you say, it just starts to fall apart, and anything can happen. And you're like, okay, well, I don't. No, if that's the case, then nothing has consequence, right? Um, and and that's that's fine. I mean, you can do a sort of Dadaist sort of uh, wild movie, and, and I don't mind a movie going off the track. But it seems as if this doesn't. I mean, it doesn't go so completely off the tracks that I get that feeling of sort of, oh, whatever, this is, this is crazy, and uh, all right, another left turn. I mean, it does seem as if the back-to-reality sort of like Wizard of Oz ending, um, you know, with the fire, but then you've got the piece of evil mm. and, you know, the, the fireman weakening that does seem to imply we're reaching for this narrative consistency that you know the, the movie can't really quite do yeah no i agree so you know so okay, so we've started the trilogy and i think both of us feel that sort of uh, time bandits i don't want to say it's a kids film but it definitely ha- it, i think you, you can definitely appreciate it younger um, which is sort of works really for what for what the thematic trilogy really is. Because then we move on to Brazil.
Okay, so we're going to put a pin in it right there. As I said, we've had our overview of Terry Gilliam, and now we've talked about Time Bandits. Okay, so, as I said, that is the uh, first part of this retrospective, covering the no view and uh, Time Bandits. In the next episode, we will be covering Brazil uh, and uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So, I shall see you on the next episode, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed these bonus episodes. I'll keep this short. So, thank you very much, and uh, we shall talk again soon. Thank you.